1: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 bet you get 20, 20 bet you get 15 15 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
0: slash $45 up front for 3 months plus
1: taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Dr. Shazan Muhammadi. He is adjunct research professor at Carleton University, and assistant director at Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. Today, we will be discussing his newly published book, Gifts from Amin, Ugandan Asian Refugees in Canada, published in Winnipeg by University of Manitoba Press 2022. Shazan, thank you for being with us today.
0: Oh, you're very welcome.
1: It's my great honor to be a part of this podcast. Thank you. I'm thrilled to have this privilege. Um, thank you for all the sacrifice and labor that you invested in this marvelous book
0: oh it was it was absolutely my pleasure i think it all goes credit to this incredible community that has come to canada and their willingness to share such deep and profound stories about the human experience with me so i'm i'm actually genuinely very thankful to them um for opening you know their hearts and homes to me uh to talk to them about this turbulent time in their life and of course what it meant you know coming of age in canada after the last 50 years
1: To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult?
0: Yeah, so we uh, we all grew up in Ottawa. So that's actually the same city where my mom was resettled. She flew into Montreal, the military base in Long Point. And then my mom, her two younger brothers, and my grandmother ended up settling in Ottawa. So just about two days later, they ended up in Ottawa. Um, that's where she, she actually ended up meeting my dad in Toronto uh, and then brought him to Ottawa. Uh, so he moved here. And then uh, my eldest brother was born, uh, who's about seven years older than I am. And then five years later, my middle brother came into the picture. He's two years older than I am. Uh, and we all grew up in Ottawa. We grew up in the East End uh, in Orleans. Uh, all of us went to the same high school. Uh, and then we moved uh, throughout life. I think I'm the only one that's still in Ottawa uh, out of the brothers, but my mom and dad are still there, uh, along with my two uncles. So my mom's two younger brothers and my grandmother as well. Uh, so from there, I did my undergraduate in history at. Queens University, and then I followed up with my master's and PhD at the University of Western Ontario, again in history, but uh, Western University had this very unique collaborative program in migration and ethnic relations. So it allowed you to do things like take courses outside of the history department, outside of your home department, uh, in places like psychology, geography, uh, anthropology, because migration itself is, of course, incredibly interdisciplinary. Uh, and allows you to look at this from a very multifaceted, multidisciplinary view. Um, And so I think what inspired me to look into this research really stems back to my mom as this incredible model of resilience. Uh, Growing up, she had always remained very positive and incredibly generous and kind with what she had. Uh, And it always struck me as something genuinely You know, profound because I knew she came from a refugee background. uh, And I was always struck by how she maintained this outlook, considering what she had gone through. Um, Of course, it was something that was not really talked about uh, when it came to the trials and tribulations or the trauma that my mom endured growing up. Uh, A lot of the stories we heard when we were younger was a lot about, you know, her life, quote unquote, back home. Uh, And this. A lo- really had to do with things like the weather. I mean, they lived on the equator. Uh, how she used to talk about how you know conversations, particularly about the weather, didn't exist. It was you know the beautiful same temperature almost year round, um, and. It was basically, you know, which dress to wear and which flip-flops to wear for the day uh, as she was growing up. But she has these really fond memories of the food, everything from Mogo to Matoke to Ogali, um, a lot of these East African, South Asian fusion dishes um, that came out. Uh, Things like Mogo is a really good example. This is like cassava, that root vegetable, which was sliced very thin and then deep fried, and covered with lemon and uh, chili pepper. Um, other elements like mandazi and barazi were really common. Uh, and she also talked a lot about these East African fruits uh, where I don't know the English names, <laughs> but uh, she covers a lot of these really tasty items like shoke, shoke um, and others like ramfur and sitafur that were all you know, from her background. And so when I reached graduate school, I became more and more interested about this story, and I realized this wasn't covered in the historical narrative. It wasn't part of Canada's history, and while many individuals, particularly the Canadian government, cited this Ugandan Asian refugee movement in Canada in the 1970s as an incredible model and example of successful integration, you couldn't find it in the Canadian historical narrative. And so, you know, we knew, you know, high-level details growing up of EDM Amin's expulsion order and what was framed to us as, you know, Pierre Elliot Trudeau's benevolence to bring our family to Canada. This was what we were told, uh, but that was largely it. And so once I began to dive into the Canadian historical record, I noticed there was no major scholarly work dedicated to this movement. And it was astounding that this was Canada's first major refugee resettlement of a non-European and you know a largely Muslim community. While there were many Christian Goans in this movement, almost a thousand uh Hindus, Sikhs of many denominations, a large proportion, almost 60%, um, were members of the Muslim community. Um, and this kind of followed deracialization of Canadian immigration policy in 1967 and Canada actually signing the UN Declaration and Protocol relating to the status of refugees in 1969. So time-wise, this was a really foundational moment for Canada's immigration history, but there was limited scholarly attention to this, and almost nothing that took into account the voices of the refugees themselves.
1: What inspired you to write this book, what message do you hope to convey to readers?
0: My initial inspiration, of course, was my mother. Uh, I was so impressed by that—you know, resiliency, generosity, and kindness towards others. Considering, you know, how much she had lost and how much she had endured. Uh, and as I entered my twenties, I was diving deeper into my own personal identity construction. You know, those very familiar questions that many of us ask ourselves in these formative years. You know, who am I? What is my background? What do I belong to? Um and I was really frustrated because when I looked to try and find answers to these questions, at least, you know, my inclination was let's take an academic approach. <laughs> you know, let's open up some books, let's try and find some things, let's do some some research. Uh, I was frustrated because this was something that just didn't exist in Canada's historical narrative, along with so many other communities that have these very deep historical roots in Canada. My message to readers is simply to help them see our shared humanity with those who have been forcibly displaced, including refugees, asylum seekers, those who are stateless, and many people who have been internally displaced. At the end of the day, we all share the same human spirit, and each of us have struggles, fears, and challenges. but. Simultaneously, we have the same hopes, dreams, and aspirations. When it comes to newcomers, particularly in the media and politics today, they're vilified and politicized as you know, bogus asylum claimants, Q jumpers, terrorists, drains on our social system, and a host of other labels that really sever our connections between citizens and refugees. And my genuine hope is this book can serve as. A very small step towards reminding all of us of these beautiful shared human connections.
1: Thank you for saying that. I couldn't agree more. My pleasure. What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell?
0: Excellent. and So there are four main themes throughout the book, um, and so they kind of go thematically um, and and in order of chronology of as this movement develops over time. So the very first theme really investigates how Ugandan Asians developed a strong sense of attachment to East Africa and really charts the early roots of this migration. Uh, And it challenges one of the most important concepts, which is this rigidity of a three-tiered race and class hierarchy that was embedded in Uganda during colonial rule. And so this kind of placed you know, white colonialists as the owners of the means of production. Uh, you kind of had your brown South Asians as um, managers of factories, of labor, of industry. And then you had your black Africans, uh, you know, your African, your Ugandan Africans who were the laborers. Um, And so while this was embedded throughout society and very deeply ingrained as part of colonial process, uh, Policy as part of this divide-and-conquer strategy uh, that was put in place because it allowed, basically, the Ugandan Africans and Ugandan Asians to kind of duke it out for position, ignoring the true perpetrators of this system who were the colonialists, the British in this instance when we're looking at Uganda. Um, I really wanted to challenge what was seen in the academic record about how this was very... Embedded and there were no, you know, it wasn't that it was an impermeable structure. When in reality, there was a lot of fluidity. Um, And so, despite being labeled as recent migrants by Idi Amin's military regime, or you know, indentured laborers who "quote unquote" forgot to go home, many Ugandan Asians viewed themselves as citizens of Uganda. So, when this expulsion decree came out, this was truly a devastating moment for many people. The second theme asserts that the Canadian government's decision to admit Ugandan-Asian expellees was based on a duality of opportunism and humanitarianism. So on the one hand, Canada responded to the expulsion decree due to appeals for assistance from the British government, the High Commissioner for Refugees at the time, and His Highness the Aga Khan IV, alongside knowledge that most expellees were highly educated, skilled entrepreneurs and professionals. On the other hand, accepting Ugandan-Asian as then-Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau stated, reinforced the nation's commitment to, quote, the ideals of human dignity, social justice, and the principle of multiracialism, end quote. The Prime Minister's remarks also reflect how government officials branded various groups of refugees in the post-war period. So Canadian refugee historian Jan Roska's work on the 12,000 Czechoslovak refugees who arrived in 1968 shows how federal officials described the incoming refugee communities as, quote, a small gold mine of talent, uh, while also seeing the resettlement as a Canadian commitment to international humanitarianism. So internal government documents reveal how the same radical was also used during the resettlement of Ugandan Asians. Now, the third theme reviews how the integration of Ugandan-Asian refugees was facilitated by collaborative efforts from the Canadian government and public, combined with the willingness of refugees to make Canada their permanent home. And this really reinforces the scholarship within migration studies that consistently emphasizes that integration is a two-way process. It requires efforts from the host community as well as newcomers to create these pathways of belonging. And lastly, the final theme investigates the transition of Ugandan Asian refugees to active Canadian citizens. So through numerous commitments to volunteerism, political participation, and and assertions of their allegiance and ties to Canada, All 49 of the interviewed refugees expressed a strong sense of being Canadian. So when I asked them all that question, you know, how do you identify yourself? You can have a hyphenated identity. You can have a singular identity. It can be based on religion. It can be based on region. There's genuinely no wrong answer. All 49 of the folks that I interviewed expressly used the term Canadian. So while it might have been hyphenated, they might have said they're a Ugandan Canadian or a Muslim Canadian, a Goan Canadian, a South Asian Canadian, um, or even simply just a Canadian. That word was the foundation of how they described themselves. And so although their identities were situated in this complex web of national, religious, and ethnic affiliations, participants always asserted this sense of Canadian-ness. Uh, In oral histories, Ugandan-Asian refugees articulate that their belief in Canadian values, including free speech, democracy, and respect for diversity. um, And they've really manifested this even now uh, by establishing a formal archive at Carleton University called the Uganda Collection to reaffirm their existence within this Canadian historical narrative and pass on these stories to future generations.
1: What is your book's contribution to modern Ugandan history?
0: So I think when it comes to modern Ugandan history, it's a very important question to consider when we're looking at the concepts of, you know, reconciliation. And so on on a large scale, there was a completely different treatment for Ugandan Africans, particularly under Idi Amin's regime compared to Ugandan Asians, and so it's estimated that almost 300 to 500,000 Ugandans were killed under Idi means regime, um, and there are very limited numbers, so there aren't concrete figures on this, but smaller, much smaller numbers um, of Ugandan Asians died during the 90-day expulsion period Many of them faced harassment um, both physically and verbally and emotionally, um, but this is one of the really challenging pieces of reconciling the past because it wasn't until the 90s uh, that under President uh, Yoweri Museveni, the current president of Uganda as well, uh, invited uh, those who had been expelled to come back, uh, so invited the Ugandan Asian community and, and diaspora uh, to return. Uh, While some did, many did not. It had been many years since they'd created these new foundations and felt this genuine sense of hurt. Uh, But we look at modern Ugandan history, it helps explain and, and think through the nuances of identity. And I think this is where it becomes particularly challenging in the current context is while there were instances of, of course, racism and exploitation, From, you know, levied by the Ugandan Asian community towards Ugandan Africans, uh, towards, you know, the local Black population, um, it prompts these very difficult questions of where do South Asians fit within Uganda's history, particularly when they were a small percentage of the population. So while they reached, you know, at the height of the 70s, there was, uh, or maybe I'd probably say late 60s, there were almost you know 80,000, that's the figure Amin uses, 80,000 Ugandan Asians um, in Uganda. That number has not necessarily, that number hasn't really returned. Um, and so there is actually a renewed wave of South Asian migration to all of East Africa, Uh, that's happened. But more recently, there's actually been a lot more migration from East Asia. Uh, So quite a lot of investment um, and migration of the Chinese community, actually.
1: What does your research teach us about the life and legacy of President Idi Amin of Uganda?
0: The research showcases, I think, one of the the approaches that was used by Idi Amin to, to solve what he called this Asian problem. Um, And this was largely due to the roots of the colonial empire. Uh, And so I'll kind of backtrack a little bit and set the scene for that uh, and then kind of bring it to the current context. So the seeds for the challenges of the South Asian community in Uganda and both Kenya and Tanzania were sown in the late 1800s during colonial rule. So for Uganda, the British Protectorate established this three-tiered race and class hierarchy in the country that encouraged, you know, white Europeans as owners, brown South Asians as managers, and black Africans as laborers. This was embedded throughout society, with segregated bathrooms in government buildings, uh, and even separate blood banks for each of the three communities. As part of this divide and conquer strategy, even South Asians were encouraged to continue holding on to these. Regional and ethnic affiliations that were also being exacerbated in British India. So, for example, there was a common sports tournament um, held in Uganda called the Pentangular Games. Um, and it was a sporting tournament in Uganda that was broken down amongst the Asian community into Hindus, Muslims, and Goans playing against all African and all European teams. Uh, and this is described by one of the participants, Jawal Jaffer. There was no singular South Asian team. And so these conceptions were reinforced by what scholars have noted as being sort of a self-segregation amongst the South Asian community in Uganda. So while the South Asian community in East Africa has these very, very long historical roots and a foundation from hundreds of years prior to colonial expansion, the larger movements didn't really occur until the 1800s, late 1800s, and really starting to accelerate in the 1920s up until 1972. Uh, And so we saw an increase in social segregation and reducing levels of intermarriage. Uh, So some scholars point to beliefs of cultural superiority fueling these challenges. So for example, the sociologist um, Benson Chikwama Mora argues that a lack of rich cultural traditions in Uganda From the Asian perspective, uh, along with the reluctance of Africans to embrace and appreciate the practices brought by Asians, troubled members of the community as they believed they were kind of the bearers of this very rich cultural tradition uh, coming from India to, well, the Indian subcontinent to East Africa. And It's important to note that many Ugandan Asians made concerted efforts to participate in Ugandan society, including strides to participate in local politics, making efforts to support Ugandan development, and grassroots-level philanthropy. Uh, It was not a universal practice, but the reality was their privileged position as these interlocutors, if you will, between the British and the Ugandan African community created significant levels of tension. And this was made evident by the common refrain that, quote, he is rich because he is Asian, and I am poor because I am African. Now, when Uganda gained independence in 1962, the first uh, there was a short sort of battle for power, and when it was reestablished in 19. 19- Sixty-eight under President Obote, he sought in some extent to limit the dominance of the Ugandan Asian community, Um, but he didn't opt for an expulsion like President Amin. His decision was influenced by these anxieties surrounded by the people of Buganda. So Buganda is one of the five traditional kingdoms in Uganda where... They had largely the most educated and best suited community to replace the Ugandan Asians, particularly as business people. And since Abote's political dominance relied on favoring members of his own community, these were allegiances to the Acholi and Langi people. He had a vested interest in keeping the economy out of the hands of the Buganda. So Buganda is the term for people of Buganda. Ultimately, while Ugandan Asians made up only 1% of the population, by the early 1970s they had controlled an estimated 80 to 90% of Ugandan trade and owned nearly 80% of the commercial sector so Idi Amin who came to power in this military coup in 1971 was able to keep the favor of the population by turning to things like populism so in his very early days he would do things like ride around town in his in his famous Land Rover, um, and wave to folks, attend sporting matches, um, and was seen as this genuine contrast to Dr. Milton Obote, the previous president, who is British educated, and actually needed a translator almost everywhere he went across the country to speak to folks, whereas Idi Amin was seen as this quote-unquote man of the people. Um, he spoke local dialects, um, he was fluent in Swahili, uh, and really seen as this person who was trying to thwart you know, the remaining shackles of colonialism. And so, you know, he often talked about this, particularly in the expulsion decree and leading up to it to say things like, you know, South Asians are sabotaging Uganda's economy uh, and failing to integrate socially with us. He would make accusations about low levels of intermarriage, um, about folks being Ugandan educated, but then moving abroad and starting businesses there. Accusations of, you know, funneling funding outside of Uganda and not contributing to local development, uh, and this resonated with the population because there were already these long historical roots of folks feeling disenfranchised by the Ugandan Asian community.
1: What does your book contribute to Canadian immigration history?
0: And so, Canadian immigration history is going through this really unique period in the nineteen seventies, uh, and so it was being revisited uh, by several governments across the political spectrum. So, um, regardless of you know whether they were liberal or conservative. Um, The last piece of major immigration legislation was the 1952 Immigration Act, and that was really designed to facilitate the movement of individuals following the Second World War and continued to target largely communities from Europe, um, the U.S., um, and sort of these traditional migrant countries to Canada. Uh, While they finally did repeal the Chinese Immigration Act in 1947, and enshrined this principle in the official de of Canadian immigration policy uh, in 1962, uh, Canada was moving towards this slow um, expansion of source countries, right? And s- expansion of a diverse approach to where uh, folks were coming from. Um, and another key moment as well leading into you know, 1972 was Canada's official signature of the UN Convention and Protocol relating to the status of refugees in 1969. You know, This momentum was steadily building in Canada towards a more equitable approach and moving away from the notion, uh, the very vague notion of quote-unquote adaptability. And this was used as a tool for screening out those who were deemed undesirable to Canada. Um, and this was manifested in the creation of the very famous point system for immigration in Canada that emerged in 1967 for skilled workers that weighed various categories of human and social capital as a means of admitting newcomers. Um, so moving away from country of origin being incredibly important to things um, as broad as you know the current level of education uh, the level of official language knowledge so, you know their abilities in English or French, um, their employment history, how old they were, uh, if they had family or relatives in Canada, and a host of these other pieces. And so, while these were certainly welcome changes, Canada didn't really have formal refugee policy in place during the Ugandan resettlement. So this ends up happening in the 1976 Immigration Act, where we actually have a codified refugee pathway, a humanitarian pathway, which is released, during this movement of Ugandan Asians, there was no formal refugee policy. It was still fitting under the theme of immigration. And one of the other fascinating elements about this movement is that it was entirely orchestrated and managed by cabinet. Uh, So in other words, it was under the direct supervision of then Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau. And so the cabinet decision was made on August 22nd of 1972 and stipulated that the number of individuals coming to Canada would not exceed 6,000 people or cost more than $4.5 million. So if either of these limits were reached, cabinet approval would need to be required to extend the refugee uh, resettlement initiative.
1: What is your book's contribution to South Asian diaspora history?
0: And so when it comes to the South Asian diaspora history, there are several scholars that really point to, you know, the larger movements, particularly in Canada, of South Asians. And so this really starts to increase in the right around the 1950s. Um, And so most of the literature focuses primarily on those that came in the post-war period and coming directly from the Indian subcontinent. And so this is where it's quite fascinating, is this whole concept of twice migrants. Um, so in this instance, these are individuals who move from the Indian subcontinent to East Africa, and this also includes Kenyans and Tanzanians, um, and then move onwards to places like um. Canada and the U.S. uh, and onwards, or particularly to to Europe, largely to um, the United Kingdom. Um, And so it touches on a very unique case study and a very, um, I would say, understudied uh, movement of people. And so while there are many members of the South Asian community themselves um, and part of the diaspora as a whole, uh, many of them are unfamiliar about Uh, the thousands of South Asians that were living in East Africa for many generations uh, before making their way to places like Canada, the US, or Britain. Uh, And so it really contributes to showcase the diversity within the South Asian diaspora itself. Um, That, you know, when we're looking particularly at East African Asians that ended up in places like North America and the U.K., um, they had come with different um, methods and different levels of education. So many of them had um, familiarity, one, with the West already because you know they were living in colonial territories, um, similar to, of course, British India. But at the same token, many of them had incredible levels of English language knowledge. Uh, many of them had done well uh, in East Africa and so we're able to obtain you know foreign degrees and were able to get you know British educated uh, and so had varying experiences of integration um, and were able to escape some of the challenges in India when it came to caste when it came to gender norms um but at the same token what makes that really fascinating is sometimes these were continuously reinforced in East Africa as a means of you know preserving ancestral ties to indian subcontinent
1: can you tell us about president milton Obote? what role did he play in the events that occurred in uganda during this time
0: yeah and so what what had led to this was while dr milton Obote was at a conference in singapore this is when idi amin took over on january 25th of 1971. Um, and it was very much a military takeover. And what had happened was, leading into this, as I touched on a little bit before, is that the greatest challenge for Milton Obote was, how was he going to return the power of the economy back into the hands of your average Black Ugandan citizen? Um, and so he had struggled to do so. And while he had leaned into things like socialism, while he had leaned into you know the Nuka pronouncements, um, of the 1970s, while he had tried in many different ways to favor state control um, of the economy to encourage things like 50% of every company must be owned by a Ugandan citizen as opposed to a foreign national um, or even owned by the government. Um, He had failed to really reinforce this using uh, policies and using... um, you know, strict regulation. Uh, And what this meant was essentially people found ways either through bribes or through, you know, ingenuity to do things like, yes, we'll, we'll have a Ugandan African as the owner of this organization, but solely on paper. In reality, you know, they would go to the store, they would look you know as if they were the shop owner uh but in reality it was you know Ugandan Asians themselves who were in control of the export imports involved in that business for example um and you know there was a large concentration of Ugandan Asians in the secondary professions so things like the medical industry dentistry um in law uh in engineering as well uh and so you couldn't really replace those folks until you had the opportunity um, to engage in hardcore—not hardcore, but in rigorous um, civic engagement and civic development. So the Ugandan African community, because it had just become, just reached independence in 1962, needed more time. and And on top of that, because Abote was favoring his own uh, communities and allegiances. This made it much harder um, for those who were well suited, like particularly those who lived in in Buganda, the, the people of Buganda like had the resources and the means to and and the education levels to really thrive, but were thwarted by Abote's government at the time um, to be able uh, to succeed. Uh, And so that failure, uh, many scholars talk about this, this failure to establish a Ugandan commercial class, a a strong Ugandan middle class, um, is what led to sort of Idi Amin's favor amongst Ugandan Asian, uh, sorry, amongst uh, Ugandan Africans.
1: Can you tell us about Roger St. Vincent? What does his memoir reveal? What is its value as a historical source?
0: And so Roger St Vincent uh, writes this beautiful memoir called Seven Christian Cranes um and um I'll call him Roger because I had the great privilege of, of interviewing him um, before he passed away unfortunately um, a few just just a few years ago um and he had a military background. Uh, so during the second world War um and he was a fighter pilot uh, so you had this very unique um, background, and he was actually sent to Kampala as the lead immigration official. So the department at the time was called the Department of Manpower and Immigration, which is now today Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada, um, as the lead on the ground. And so he was responsible for establishing the office in Kampala, for recruiting a team of immigration officers, for overseeing... Um, Not only the establishment of the office, but also the medical examinations, overseeing the flights, um, everything that had to do with this movement all fell on Roger St. Vincent's shoulders. And in this memoir, he actually kept a journal with him. Um, it's very fame it's this famous journal that uh, Michael Malloy who is an immigration officer and basically second in command at the time talks about is that you know everywhere Roger went he kind of had this this journal kind of tucked under his uh under his shoulder um and he kept detailed notes um, of daily activities and so when you look through the memoir it will literally say the date and then detailed inscriptions of you know these are the numbers of Immigration processing applications. We were able to achieve today. These were some of the sticking points. Um, these were some of the challenges we were facing when it came to medical examinations. Uh, and very detailed. We were able to secure forty-five desks, uh, for example, today with the health, with the help of you know a local Ugandan Asian who I was referred to, um, or I had a meeting with our British counterparts today, and you know we leaned in and shared some nuances about the differences between the immigration level processing. And what I really enjoyed is, you know, how he starts his memoir talking about he how he had always been a fan of uh, Mission Impossible. And so when he first received, you know, the telex, so basically the memo <laughs> that's being uh, sent to him, it was written in this very, you know, Mission Impossible way where it says, you know, your mission, should you wish to accept it, uh, is to proceed to Uganda uh, to Kampala, Uganda, to set up an immigration team uh, to extract uh, as many Ugandan Asian expelies, um as Canada can admit, so long as they met the criteria to do so. Uh, and so, you know, he, he mentions tongue-in-cheek in the memoir, you know, all that was missing was that this message will self-destruct uh, in 90 seconds or something like that. So, His memoir is this incredible contribution because it's Genuinely, a day by day account of exactly what happened on the ground in Kampala from the lens of the head of the entire immigration program.
1: How did the "quote unquote" Asian problem arise for Idi Amin? What were the motivating forces behind the expulsion decree?
0: And so. It really expands on our earlier discussions, right? So these roots of the colonial problem, the challenges regarding intermarriage, this social exclusivity. Um, some of it was based on, you know, the self segregation that was embedded within the South Asian community. Some of it was, you know, the racism that was occurring. There was discrimination that happened, and I think one of the oral history participants placed it really well. Um, When he talks about how when he first arrived in canada he was working at a job and ended up working about a 12-hour shift but only got paid for six hours of labor Mm -hmm. and in his reflection um says you know now i understood what it was like for the people we used to employ in uganda now i understand what it was like to feel this same sense of discrimination um And he articulates this beautifully by saying, you know, this is what happened in Uganda. And now today, uh, in the current context, everyone is denying it. Um, And I think this is really powerful because throughout the oral histories, of course, people were incredibly self-reflexive and when they came back to this nuance and and thought very critically about Idi expulsion decree, a lot of them mentioned how, you know, at times we really did stick to our community. At times there was prejudice. At times when, you know, people were seen dating outside of the community um, or socializing with folks outside of the community, you know, rumors would spread. and so, a lot of these notions were quite real, and and there are many, there are many, particularly those that were part of the public servant uh, service community. So many, you know, go in those of go in it uh, background um, were the complete opposite. Were very well integrated within the Egan community, frequented local African clubs, uh, participated in politics, and you know many others within the South Asian community, um, be it Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, even the Parsi community, there were, there were examples within those communities that were heavily involved um, in fighting for Ugandan independence, in fighting for self-determination and, and independence, and many who even sought to ensure that there was equal political participation uh, but right. the challenge became that while um, independence was being formulated, South Asians were really excluded from that process. Um, and to one extent, it, it does make a bit of sense, considering how small they were in terms of population. Um, but it was important that they, that they should have a voice. Um, and so all of these nuances really contributed to Idiom means expulsion decree because he was capitalizing on this common sentiment um, that again the Asians were genuinely sabotaging this economy that they weren't in it you know for the long haul that they that they either chose to become citizens because they couldn't go to Britain or they chose to become citizens to take advantage of the situation so now that they were citizens you know they could circumvent some of the legislation that was put in place that you know, in order to be the owner of an industry, um, 50% of that industry or company needed to be owned by a citizen. And so he had a lot of opportunities, Idi Amin did at least, um, to kind of point to how, you know, Ugandan Asians, to put it simply, weren't playing fair uh, when it came to the economy. Who is Michael Malloy? Can you
1: contextualize
0: him for us? Absolutely. And so Michael Malloy was second in command uh, in Kampala when it came to immigration processing. Uh, And so he went on to have an illustrious public service career after. He served as the ambassador to Jordan, um, had risen through the ranks as a director general in the immigration department. Um, And uh, was, of course, a, an incredible resource for myself. I, I met him very early on. Uh, it was probably 2012 uh, when I was just in the first year of my PhD um, and helped me connect with a lot of Ugandan and Asian refugees uh, that he kept close contact with um, through all of the years uh, and has these incredible stories of what it was like to do the processing, um, what were some of the challenges that they faced, uh, and has been really involved in, in a lot of the commemorative events uh, and has done several speaking engagements. Uh, and he also talks about how, you know some of the new some of the key lessons learned from this refugee resettlement um, informed not only the 1976 Act, but also the resettlement of those that came from Indochina. So after the fall, uh, after the Vietnam War, those from Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam, um benefited from one of the most important things, which would be private refugee sponsorship in Canada. And one of the key links that Michael Malloy makes is that, you know, by the time we had received applications from Ugandan Asians on the ground in Kampala, if any of them had relatives in Canada, we were receiving these telegrams and these messages in the mail to say, you know, applicant so-and-so, you know, four, five, seven. Um is actually my niece, or is actually my brother-in-law. Um, if you can get them to Canada, we'll look after them. And and he uses this term. He's like when, whenever we found out that there were, someone had an auntie or an uncle, this was as good as gold, because he felt that reassurance that families would help their relatives, you know, their fellow family members integrate successfully into Canadian life. Uh, and so this was something he applied. Um. In particular, in the case of the Indo Chinese movement, uh, where he was also a lead immigration official, and so I'm I'm very thankful to Michael uh, after all these years um, of continuing to put in you know excellent work and and ensure that this movement is not forgotten within you know the Canadian historical narrative and and reinforce the power of these human stories. Um, and so Michael really has this nuanced view um, of the reality on the ground, uh, particularly about the application process. And so one of the things he also mentions is that... Um,
1: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by
0: dating. All the, must not take yourself too
1: seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage.
1: No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com
0: slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Because folks had applied very early on and they had received all of these applications, um, they, they received, you know, almost... 10,000 applications in the first three weeks. Um, it took time for officers to review these. And, and what ended up happening is when they were inviting folks for the next stage, so for the interview or for the medical examination, the community wasn't really aware of what the quote-unquote Canadian criteria was. So they were unaware of you know what might potentially gain them some points or make it easier for them to be accepted to Canada. So he, he felt very confident in the genuineness of the data that they received. Um, And so that there was a lot of integrity in the material that they received. There was a lot of honesty. And so they can make informed decisions um, on a lot of these applications. And so he said that was something that was really unique in this movement because naturally, of course, if you are fleeing persecution, if you have an opportunity to kind of um, say something in your application, uh, that may not be entirely true, or may lead to any sort of potential benefit or advantage. Let's say to come to Canada, you you would use it. Uh, it was it's a it's a natural human thing to do.
1: What role did Prince Sadruddin and the Aga Khan play? in the events that you chronicle.
0: And so what's really fascinating about this is that um, Aga Khan, the Aga Khan the fourth of this period, um, it was his uncle who ended up being the high commissioner, so Prince Souther then, at the time of this refugee resettlement, so at the time of this 90-day expulsion period. And so the Aga Khan and Pierre Elliott Trudeau have this close personal friendship, and they originally met at Harvard, uh, and so at the time, what was rather unique was that both Diagana's uh, grandfather, who was also the leader uh, of the spiritual community, um, this is a the Shia Ismaili Nizari Ismaili Muslim community, had advised many community members, particularly living in the Indian subcontinent, to migrate to East Africa. Um, because there were lots of opportunities. Um, If you had, you know, a large family, maybe consider um, having one or two children settle in East Africa. Uh, And on that advice, um, quite a few Ismailis did move uh, to East Africa. And what ended up happening is through this um, period where independence is on the rise throughout Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, the advice given by the Aga Khan at this time is to say that, you know, you should become citizens in the places in which you live. Um, You should contribute to where you live. um, And this may be um, probably the best pathway for you moving forward. Um, Of course, individuals were allowed to make decisions on their own, but that was sort of the guidance that was received um, at the time. And so this was really challenging because with Idi Amin's expulsion decree, the Aga Khan was left in a very challenging position because he had given that advice to many folks to become you know, citizens in the countries in which they lived, to genuinely become Ugandan citizens. And with Idi Amin's expulsion decree, their citizenship was completely revoked. So it didn't matter uh, you know, whether you had lived there for three years or three decades, you um, even if you were a Ugandan national, a Ugandan citizen, if you had South Asian descent, you had genuinely 90 days to leave the country. And while there were moments where this went back and forth in the policy during the 90-day period that you know some professionals might be able to stay, you can receive special permission, I mean, ultimately went back and said, no, if you are of South Asian descent, you do need to go. Um, there's a very, very small handful of folks that stayed uh, in Uganda, uh, of South Asian background, um, many of those were elderly. It was difficult for them to travel, and others who genuinely sought to, you know, live under the radar, uh, and were just too attached um, to Uganda and felt that sense of nationhood to leave. And so, you know, going back to when the Aga Khan and Pierre L'Archville were at Harvard, there was a close relationship that built up over time. Um, So much so to the extent that the Aga Khan was actually an honorary pallbearer at Pierre Elliott Trudeau's funeral. And so what I was able to see at the archives um, are the letters that were sent between Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau and the Aga Khan while he was Prime Minister. Um, So I'm I'm sure there are, of course, far more letters, far more exchanges uh, between the two of them over the years. But that was kind of what I had access to at Library and Archives Canada. Um, And often these letters um, were sent, you know, congratulating each other on the birth of a new child, sending their best wishes to each other over the holiday season, uh, and commemorating other major life events. And what I found rather unique is that these letters were often signed um, by both Prime Minister P. L. Trudeau at the time and Diaga Khan uh, by hand uh, saying, in friendship, and then they would sign their name after that. And so while the relationship was special, one thing that we absolutely have to discuss here is that the archival records clearly demonstrate that there were multiple motivations for Canada's decision to resettle Ugandan Asian refugees. You know, the letters between the prime minister's office and the Aga Khan clearly outlined that his religious community would not receive any special treatment. Um, And these... This is articulated in you know, the immigration records themselves. So in, I guess, the Department of Manpower and Immigration um, at that time, um, clearly documents all of this. Uh, and this is also reinforced by Roger St. Vincent's memoir, uh, as well as the interview that I did with him, and even Jerry Campbell, who writes this after-action report uh, on the Ugandan-Asian uh, refugee resettlement. And, and what they what they document is that, one, um, it is a myth. So not every person that's stateless, so not everyone who had their citizenship vote, um, was Ismaili. And not all Ismailis themselves were stateless. Many of them had British passports and Indian passports and had somewhere to go. And so that was really Canada's primary focus at this time was... do we help those that are stateless? How do we help those that cannot go to India or Pakistan or the UK? Uh, And so ultimately, Canada's priority was really on resettling those who were stateless and rooted in a universal humanitarian process uh, for those that had nowhere else to go. It was not based on the religious affiliation of Egypt and Asians or sort of like appeasing these requests from the Aga Khan to, you know, quote unquote, resettle my people.
1: Can you comment on how you went about conducting your interviews? How did you meet your interviewees? What challenges were involved in conducting the interviews? What steps did you take to ensure confidentiality? your interviews with survivors.
0: And thank you, Ari. I'm so glad you asked this question about you know oral history practice and conducting these interviews and, and what does it mean? And I think overall, I'm incredibly grateful to the community. Um, the interviews themselves were truly incredible. I was blown away by how candid and honest the reflections of participants were. Um, one of the things that was really important is... I met a lot of interviewees through people like Michael Malloy, um, through my mom's own personal connections, and then after I, I had done about probably five or six interviews, word really started to spread throughout the community across Canada uh, that you know there is this you know young researcher. He's the child of a Ugandan Asian refugee he's doing this research it's an opportunity for us to tell our stories here's his, here's his email, here's his phone number um, and the word of mouth really really took off uh, and so I'm really really grateful for that uh, but one of the most important things is you know often we would meet in in someone's home and I really framed it as this informal conversation basically a chai in a China chat, Um, about your life in Uganda and subsequently your life in Kinda, And so I really left things to be incredibly open-ended. And part of my mission was to let folks hold on to the agency, the agency to tell their story um, as witnesses to the past based on what they deemed to be important. So I sort of followed them on whatever journey they decided to take. So if they wanted to spend a lot of time talking about the weather or the family business in Uganda um, or, you know, how their cousins ended up in Sweden, for example, um, and their battles towards, you know, family reunification for them all to end up in Canada, I would follow these threads. Um, I wouldn't, you know, always push back to say things like, well, you know, what was the expulsion period like for you? Um, Or can you, you know, tell me a little bit about the policies in Canadian immigration that led to you coming to Canada. I really wanted to follow them in whichever direction they went. The only other specific question I would ask at the end of every interview is, you know, how do you identify yourself? Um, And you can use, you know, any concept of identity, hyphenated identities. Again, you know, there's no wrong answer to that. Uh, But that was one of the, the goals was allow that ability to give the power back to those who experienced the history to document the, the moments in their life that were important to them um, one of the important things was also building trust uh, i was incredibly fortunate uh, to be a member of the community so i think that Helped rather quickly because people would ask, you know, the same questions. Oh, like your mom's from Uganda? Whereabouts? I would say, you know, she was from Barara. What was her maiden name? Rupani. Uh, there was a really famous uh, Rupani family actually in Barara, which was not my family, <laughs> um, and so a lot of folks could recognize the name um, and make those connections. So, you know, within ten to fifteen minutes, people felt pretty comfortable. We would walk through, you know, all of the ethics requirements. Um, and before diving into the actual formal interview, one of the important things I wanted to remind folks was that, you know, there's, this could bring back a lot of traumatic memories. Um, and so at any point in time, they, we can take breaks, we can move on to different subjects, we can stop the interview. Um, at any point in time in the next, you know, two to three years after we had done the interview, um, if they wanted to withdraw from the study, it was not a problem. Um, I really didn't want to force folks um, to get into things that were too difficult to discuss, and so we did have these moments. There were some tough moments. Um, people, you know, took the time that they needed, um, and you know, allowed them, you know, all all the necessary things that they might need to help. Um, so there, there were there were, there were a few in particular where. Um, Folks did have these tougher experiences describing what had happened. For a large part, I think what made it a little bit easier is a significant period of time had passed. You know, it had been over 40 years at this point that anyone was being interviewed. Um, they did also really view me. I was uh, quite lucky that at the time I was, you know, a, a young graduate student. So they, many of the folks I interviewed were very close to retirement age or had just recently retired. So they they've used this as an opportunity to basically, you know, tell their own story to their child. Um, because they could see that in me. And, and they use those South Asian terms of endearment like beta or dickro when speaking to me. And I of course called them all auntie and uncle, uh, out of respect. And so we were able to build on that. And so I think one of the last important nuances, um, actually there's two. Uh, when it came to these interviews, one was that often after the formal interview had been completed, so basically when I turned off the tape recorder, um, we would either you know have lunch or dinner or have a second cup of chai, and often they invite they would invite family members. Uh, to come meet me uh, and to tell me a little bit about their own stories. And so there were these beautiful, very rich discussions. People were challenging each other's memories. People were, you know, refuting certain elements. Um, but all of that isn't included in the book uh, or even in my doctoral research, you know, out of respect to their confidentiality and, of course, to the ethics agreement that we had signed. Uh, the second thing that's really interesting about the interviews themselves, is we have to insert the importance of the actual historical context. And so i had done all of my interviews between 2013 and the summer of 2015. So this was prior to the tragic death of Ion Kurdi and the Syrian refugee movement to Canada. Um, and so I do genuinely believe that that would have shaped some of the reflections um, within the interviews um, to reflect some of the current political debates that were happening. And even now, uh, as I continue to work on more oral histories, I think the current context of, you know, Venezuela in the after the Syrians, um, Afghanistan, Ukraine, uh, Sudan, and many other regions uh, would also influence how folks reinterpreted the past. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's part of, human memory, uh, is that we're continuously reconstructing the past. uh, And this makes, uh, based on, you know, our current circumstances, our current views, uh, which makes oral history, of course, incredibly fascinating, um, but also, you know, very relevant to the current context.
1: Who was Bryce Macassie? Can you elaborate on his importance?
0: Absolutely. And so Bryce Macassie was the minister for manpower and immigration at the time. Uh, And so what made Bryce Maxey's position so fascinating is that right around the, pretty much in the middle of this operation in Uganda, there was a federal election. Um, So the election happened in October. uh, And so the minister's ability to kind of be involved in the refugee resettlement was quite limited, particularly because... Prime Minister of PLA at Trudeau wanted to have a heavy hand um, in what was happening and have eyes on this resettlement initiative in particular. And so this was a cabinet decision and. Uh, Makassi in particular was kind of left out of some of the high-level decisions when it came to this refugee resettlement, uh, which is quite fascinating. And And a very, very good example of this is the charter flights that were flown from Entebbe International Airport in Uganda to Canada. And what ends up happening is Idi Amin learns that the Canadian government is actually going to be charging Refugees and and it's something that happens even today with what's known as an assisted passage law, and so there's there's a cap on how much each family has to uh, pay back. But basically, all of those who left Uganda would actually have to pay back the cost of their flights from Uganda to Can- to Canada and then their onward travel. So while many of them end up in the military base in Long Point, just outside, right, basically in Montreal, that next journey, so if they ended up in Vancouver, in Ottawa, in Toronto, in Calgary, um, that was also part of the assisted passage line. So when Idi Amin was made aware of this, he demanded the Canadian government to use his airline, to use East Africa Airways, um, to use local airlines, and if they refused to do so, he expected a 50% cut. Off of the ticket prices to say, well, if you're going to be charging folks for this, and I'm arguing that they've taken all this money from Uganda and that many of them are well to do, um, the Ugandan government should profit off of this movement. And so what ends up happening is the direction comes directly from the prime minister to say, actually, we will be waiving the costs of all the charter flights to Canada, uh, which is indeed what happened. Uh, So the flights to Canada were at no charge um, to the Ugandan Asian community. Their onward journey was, uh, and one of the really interesting things about these assisted passage loans is it's about a year after they resettle in Canada where they're asked to make small repayments. It's an interest-free loan, um, but very fascinating that in this particular movement, probably the most expensive part of the flight, which was coming from you know Uganda all the way to Canada, was completely covered by the Canadian government.
1: Can you tell us about the personal relationship between the Aga Khan and Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau?
0: And so their personal relationship kind of dates back. Uh, the personal relationship between the Aga Khan and Pierre Elliott Trudeau dates back to when they initially crossed paths in Harvard. Um, and this really covers you know all of that stuff we discussed earlier about their letters uh, signing off mm-hmm. in friendship um, to the Aga Khan being the honorary Paul Greer, uh at Pierre Elliott Trudeau's funeral uh, and so while they had this close relationship celebrated you know particular milestones in each other's lives um, they did vacation together um, as they sort of allude to this in some of the letters that they send back and forth um, this is kind of one of the things where um, it has been confirmed that there was a phone call made between the Aga Khan and uh, Prime Minister Piela Trudeau, but of course um, the notes from that call are nowhere to be found uh, in the archives and I haven't really been able to uncover what was happening. What, what we can conclude is that the Aga Khan did ask for the possibility of safe haven for um, his community members. Um, and Khan did make a visit to Canada in late September uh, of 1972, uh, but also from those meeting minutes, uh, the he did not meet uh, Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau at the time either. Uh, so did meet with some senior ranking officials at uh, the Department of Manpower and Immigration, um, but did not actually meet with Pierre Elliott Trudeau, or at least you know if that meeting did occur, it was. You know, off the books, it's not something we can find. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it is worth remembering that Canada did implement a a universal immigration policy, uh, and it did not necessarily mean that if you know this notion that if you were a follower of the Aga Khan, you were coming to Canada. Uh, while there were rumors of of that within the community, uh, it did not bear out in both the numbers of Ismanis that came to Canada uh, and, you know, the many Ismanis that ended up in places like the UK and even the US.
1: What does your research teach us about the process and practice of oral history?
0: And so I think what we can glean from the book and this work in, in migration studies and particularly this practice of oral history is, you know, the book, points to the immense contributions that interviews make to complicating the historical record. It's just, frankly, another viewpoint. Uh, Just like you're looking at different newspapers, different archival records, this is just another primary source. So historians rely on primary source information. Primary source essentially means documents that were created at the time um, to interpret the past. Uh, And similarly, how you know, what is kept in an archive is subject to the influences of the day and how the authors of these you know, physical materials are not subjective. They have their own biases, intuitions, uh, and concepts. Oral histories also share some of the same faults, um, but with this added complication of memory. So our memories continuously change over time as we revisit the past and are being continuously reconstructed. In the book, oral histories at times reinforced what was outlined in the historical records, including archival material, while in other instances, they provided these very rich examples of alternative events. This was particularly apparent when breaking down the notions of that race and class hierarchy in Uganda. Most of the historical literature painted this picture of a rigid system when, in fact, there were several instances of people who were genuinely engaged in every aspect of Ugandan society, who had intermarried, who had become citizens based on this genuine affiliation to the country. And there were these very interesting oral histories where folks talk about how Ugandan Africans, who they encountered over the years, helped them actually get past checkpoints helped them in these really tough situations during the 90-day expulsion period that really had their back because in some instances um they had funded their education. Um that's one of the things that even happened to Senator Lubina Jaffer. Her her husband was unfortunately kidnapped during the 90-day expulsion period and sent to you know the McKinney barracks, which was this infamous prison barrack, if you will, um, that was known for torturing. Um, Ugandan Asians as well as Ugandan Africans, um, and it was only intelligence that she received from um, one of Idi Amin's military soldiers who had actually been able to go to school because of Senator Jaffer's family's support. They had basically paid his school fees um, to get out of the country um, and actually got him out of the, the barracks. Um, and got them out of the country very, very quickly.
1: Can you tell us about the challenges faced to acclimatizing to life in Canada by Ugandan Asian refugees? Can you comment on the access and ability to work encountered by Ugandan Asians? Can you tell us about the barriers of social integration, family adjustment, and language that Ugandan Asian refugees experienced in Canada.
0: Exactly. And so Ari, the experience of life in Canada was very unique um, and 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 nuanced. There were so many different elements that Ugandan Asians faced. And so on the one hand, there is this overwhelming belief that Ugandan Asians all did incredibly well, uh, which is not necessarily the case. They, they, like any community, have folks who have you know, spent their time working as watchmakers, for example, or jewelers, or mechanics. Um, there are others who have become these hoteliers, these business tycoons, these titans of industry. Uh, they got reaccredited as doctors, lawyers, and engineers. Um, you know, have recreated some of that entrepreneurial success. Um, moved on to become, you know, politicians uh, and leaders in their communities. Uh, But there's a whole host of experiences amongst this community. And one of the really fascinating things, of course, the number one thing that folks realize once they get to Canada is the weather is nowhere near like what it is at home, uh, as well as the food. Uh, A lot of folks, uh, even in the archival records, talk about uh, how Canadian food is quite bland. Uh, in comparison, um, how there's a limited diversity of, of fruits and vegetables compared to what they were used to. Um, a very interesting story that there's two that involve food that I had with interviewees. Um, one of one of the interviewees I spoke to talked about how after his spouse had gotten a big promotion, they decided, you know, finally, we're going to go out for this famous pizza. Um, and when they sat at the restaurant, they ordered, there were two people, and they ordered two medium pizzas because they thought a medium pizza was a portion for one. <laughs> and so they end up eating as much as they can um, and leave the pizza uh, and don't actually take it. And And he laughed as he was telling me this story to say, you know, we had no concept of, you know, like a doggy bag, like takeaway, away uh, after you had finished your meal Um or another really interesting one is my mom's experience when it came to hamburgers so my mom did not eat a hamburger until her fifth year in canada because she assumed that because there was ham in the name it had pork in it so she thought hamburgers were these pork <laughs> minced pork items uh, instead of more commonly being ground beef <laughs> and so of course the weather was really challenging Um, a lot of people have these great reflections about their first snowfall, um, or also, quite frankly, continuing to hate the weather even after 50 years in Canada. One of the other things that Ugandan Asians faced in particular, and this is, again, the power of oral histories, is that all of the studies on the surface um, revealed that Ugandan Asians were rapidly employed in Canada. So a study points to the fact that within six months of being in Canada, almost 90% of the principal applicants, so basically the heads of household that had come to Canada were employed. And so that's an incredible statistic at the outset to say, wow, you know, we're looking at a community of almost 6,000 people that had been here for six months already having a job. Um, At least the heads of families did. However, the reality is that 60% of those people were not able to secure employment in their field of expertise. So a lot of them faced underemployment. And this really came out in the interviews. People spoke about how they had applied for um, certain positions um, that were offered. So, for example, someone applied to CP Rail as a manager. When they got to the interview, they were told, actually, the only job they have is for a laborer. One person applied to a management position at an airline company because they had 20 years of experience in Canada in the airline industry and was told that the only opportunity that exists there is for baggage handlers. Um, There were others who really pushed back on this concept of credentialization. So This is still a problem that exists, um, particularly in the Western world, is that your foreign credentials or your foreign work experience is not viewed as being on par with the local community. So when they look at your university degree, let's say from McRae Ray University in Kampala, it does not mean that you also hold a bachelor's degree here in Canada. It's not seen as the equivalent. Um, And so Jalal Jaffer articulates this very well uh, in his interview, and he says, you know, I always ask them, what do you mean by Canadian experience? Um if if you used to work as a lawyer, you are a lawyer. Uh, there's not much more to it. Um, what does it matter if it's in Canada that you are a lawyer versus uh, elsewhere? And yes, of course there are different rules and regulations. Um, but to discredit someone, he felt that that was really, really painful and that hurt him the most and and he was he did go on to become a successful lawyer, uh, retook the bar, Um, achieve the credentials he needed to, um, but it was a really challenging experience for him. And so I think that was one of the things that many folks dealt with is this concept of, you know, not having the credentials or not having this famous Canadian experience. Um, That was something that almost everyone cited in their interviews. Uh, And one person even pushed back to say, you know, I've been in Canada for five days and I'm applying for a job. Um, What is this Canadian experience and how can I get it? Um, And is it something I can get in five days? (laughs) Because I'm ready to work and and I I really do want to look after my family while I'm here. I'm not. That was another thing that came out as well was, you know, a lot of folks were not used to this concept of government subsidies. Um, A lot of them felt that, you know, they had been extended enough generosity by being able to come to Canada that this, it was time for them to work. Can you
1: describe Canadian Forces Base? Long Point in Montreal?
0: Yeah. So the Canadian Forces Base in Long Point served as a reception facility. And largely what would happen is people would fly um, from Entebbe International Airport. There was a fueling stop along the way. And then the next stop was um, Montreal Airport. So uh, from there, they took a bus to the Canadian Forces Base. And Basically, it was a it was an overnight flight. So often folks would arrive around, you know, the early hours of the morning between 3 and 5 a.m. Um, they were greeted with a hot meal. That was one of the most fascinating things is that um, the military chef at uh CFB Long Point was trained by a local Indian restaurant chef uh, on how to make uh Indian food. <laughs> and so it was really fascinating. So folks were quite happy and, and talk about this. There was a Newsline article that said, you know, the the food was even better than what I could make at home. Um, or one of the folks that they interviewed in, the, um, in one of the commemorative events says, you know, when I came and I saw the Indian Palau being cooked for us, I thought to myself, there are people. And then there are people. Uh, and that's my PhD supervisor's favorite quote <laughs> from my thesis. But, you know, it really speaks to you know the effort that was taken, and one of the other things that come out in the archival documents is also that the goal was for folks to spend as little time as possible on the military base. This was supposed to be a place to rest, recover, the next day finish whatever immigration processing that you, that needs to be done. You know, log the papers, um, and then get folks onto their final destination. Uh, so they aim to have a forty-eight hour turnaround. Um, kind of equip people with things like uh basic winter clothing uh some of the essentials that they'll need help them get acclimatized to canada um as quickly as possible uh, and then help them get to their next destination so one of the really interesting things about that is uh they were trying to help folks reunite with their families that might have come earlier in the movement um or if they already had a relative Uh, and so these manpower counselors were tasked with that um and so you know the five, the top five cities for resettlement for the, you know, initial four thousand two hundred or so that travel through, the Canadian Forces Base uh, end up being Vancouver. Vancouver gets about a thousand and thirty four people. Montreal gets four hundred and eighty. Toronto gets four hundred and forty. Winnipeg gets two hundred and four, and Ottawa gets about one hundred and twenty four. Um, and so, you know, that's the kind of only the reliable data we have where folks ended up. Um, of course, they went to all types of cities across Canada. Um, and a really interesting example of that is um, if you did not have a relative, um, in your interview with a manpower counselor, they would try to offer you advice about where to go based on your professional skills. And there was one instance where the last name of the individual being interviewed was Charnya. and the officer says, why don't you go to Sarnia, Ontario, because it rhymes with Charnia. Uh, And that's where they ended up. (laughs) Uh, And so that was a a very interesting oral history interview where, you know, they talk about how, you know, some of this was just at all, you know, some of it was just, you know, time and a place and um, folks really did settle throughout Canada.
1: What does your book teach us about the immigration policy of Pierre Elliott Trudeau? during the 1970s
0: and so what we see in the 1970s is this shift right so we start to see all these key milestones from you know the deracialization of canadian immigration policy then the signature then you know the point system coming out in 67 and then lastly you know the convention protocol the UN Convention and Protocol relating to the status of refugees being signed in 1969. So this momentum is building towards this equitable approach and moving away from the notion of this vague concept of you know, adaptability um, or source country. Uh, not source country, but they used country of origin at the time uh, being the predominant factor that weighs whether someone is admitted to Canada or not. Um, and so we look at this movement, and we see the reality that, at the outset, um Cabinet had assumed that about 40% of the 6,000 they had initially approved of resettling, about 40% or so, um, would actually need a lot more social assistance once they got to Canada. Uh, they would be called, quote-unquote, hardcore cases. Um, Those that would need more social assistance, more hand-holding, more help with the integration process. They assumed that they wouldn't be as well qualified um, to do well in Canada, and were prepared to help that number. What they found out based on the quality of the applications that they're receiving quite early on within the first month or so um, was that that number of those that were going to need assistance was significantly smaller. Um, And that is probably why Canada admitted more than 6,000, because many of them were highly skilled entrepreneurs, highly intelligent, held good levels um, of English language knowledge. Um, The average level of education, so the average number of years a Ugandan Asian that came to Canada spent in the education system was 14 years. Um, so it really was a highly educated population uh coming to Canada so it it really does showcase that those dual motivations it showcases some of the opportunism showcases that you know this is a an excellent opportunity when you're thinking about this as a political move this is an excellent opportunity to reinforce that we're a signatory of the UN convention um look really good on the international stage um help out the Commonwealth, right so Britain realizes after this expulsion decree happens and, you know, that there's 80,000 Ugandan Asians. Well, EDM calls them British Asians. Um, In reality, there was probably about 50,000 or so. And, you know, in 1968, the, you know, Sir Edward Heath's party was elected on an anti-immigrant platform. There was no way they were going to be able to resettle 50,000 you know, South Ugandan Asians. It was not going to happen, uh, and so they appealed to the Commonwealth, to Australia, to Canada, to anyone, to Europe, to Europe, um, for those that could lend a helping hand uh, with this resettlement. And that's what's quite fascinating is, you know, Canada looks at everything uh, to say that there's a, there's an opportunity, and and one of the internal documents talks about. Uh, why Canada should do this. And it it lists out these same benefits, lists out all these motivations. It lists out things like the high levels of education, the high levels of English language knowledge, the high levels of entrepreneurial success, the high levels, the high numbers of professionals in this community. And also says, you know, we're going to look it on the Canadian stage. This will help the Canadian public who's concerned about this. Um, And you know ultimately we can also appease the request you know from the Aga Khan as well to help some of these folks uh and so they frame it as uh the document frames it as this is a win 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 uh for the Canadian government who was jerry campbell
1: can you contextualize him
0: for us absolutely and so Jerry Campbell was part of the team uh, on the ground in Kampala, Uganda. So you had Roger St. Vincent as the head, second in command as Michael Malloy. And then Jerry Campbell is actually this very junior immigration officer. Um, so he had very recently completed his training in Ottawa. Um, and I don't even think he had completed his first um placement abroad. So, you know, often immigration officers are stationed for at least two years uh, before they're moved to a new assignment. Uh, So he hadn't even completed his first one and was pulled into um, the Uganda Asian refugee Resettlement. So he writes this very interesting after-action report talking about some of the challenges that they faced. And so he's the one that talks about this concept of, you know, not all Ismailis are stateless and not all stateless are Ismaili. Um, he talks about some of the challenges of uh, separating families. Um, and one of the things that made that really difficult um, is that, you know, if you were over a certain age, uh, I can't remember the exact age at the time, um, you would be considered your own family unit. Um, so there is uh, a chance that you and your siblings would be separated. Um, and this had happened. Uh, if I look at the at the Fakirani family, for example, uh, they had two sisters already in Canada. They were a group of like almost eight or nine siblings. Um, two or three of the siblings were able to come to Canada and reunite the sisters, but the rest of the family, including the parents, ended up in Malta in Spain. Uh, sorry, not in Spain, but in Malta in Europe, um, where they were in a refugee camp until they could be sponsored by their family to come to Canada. Uh, and so Jerry Campbell really talks about this in an after-action report, saying, "You know, this is this is slightly problematic. Um, if we're trying to do humanitarian work, if we're trying to help these folks, separating families is a is a really challenging concept uh, and really hard thing to implement." Um, he also calls for a little bit more um, of a strict approach uh, when it came to evaluating some of the security elements, and other pieces. Um, But of course, he's unaware entirely of, you know, the RCMP's assessment at the time and security officials really pointing to the fact that, you know, this cohort has no real um, security threat when it comes to
1: Canada. Can you tell us what the contributions that Ugandan Asians in Canada have made to Canadian society? In particular, can you tell us about the contributions that they have made to volunteerism in canada
0: absolutely and so the the ugandan asian community has kind of done as i've mentioned a few times you know incredibly well uh, in canada and and a lot of this has to do with um acts of volunteerism um and and also you know, positions of power. so there are there are folks that have become CEOs, folks that have become MPs um you know, the current minister for Justice right now R. Ferrani is the child. Uh, I guess he was I think he was two years old when he came to Canada as part of this movement as a Uganda Asian refugee um there are other many other MPs um many other, very famous business families, um, folks that have had head up positions at, you know, BC Hydro have received honorary degrees. Um, what was genuinely fascinating about the interviews I conducted was that when we delved into this topic of Canadian, every single person described themselves as being Canadian in some way, shape, or form. And when I asked them what it meant to be Canadian, many of them cited the importance of volunteer work in specific. Um, so, for example, Soficar mentioned that quote: "It's just all the values, you know. When you participate in Easter Seal campaigns, when you become part of all this, you feel Canadian." Uh, he was, a, you know, a longstanding member of the Rotary Club, and in fact, joined in 1977. Um, others had founded these international charities or organizations that were doing things like providing education services to girls in rural india um dr Shefik pirani out of the university of british columbia had started the uganda foot club project where you know he was teaching nurses and surgeons on the ground in uganda through mobile clinics how to you know repair something at birth uh that can significantly improve the lives um of Ugandans, you know, of children as they come of age, um, you know, and proceed, you know, done over thousands of procedures uh, to do that. Another really good sort of grassroots level example is uh, Northern Somji, um, who notes in his memoir that he was awarded a certificate from the Red Cross for having donated blood over 30 times by 1997. Um, so you have these very interesting examples of how important being and feeling Canadian is and, and this aspect of volunteerism being really par- important to that. And, you know, this supports what many scholars have mentioned as this sig- the significance of civic engagement. Uh, another study cites how a participant described that when it, that you become Canadian by, quote, doing community work, a real Canadian citizen by doing Canadian work, end quote.
1: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? What have you been working on next? What are you working on now?
0: Excellent. So Ari, right now I'm currently working at Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada as an assistant director supporting refugee resettlement. Uh, And it's been incredibly fulfilling to share some of my previous NGO experience. So after I had completed my doctoral studies, I spent four years in Europe helping with um, working one-on-one with refugee families from Syria, uh, Afghanistan, and Tajikistan to resettle in mainland Europe. So principally in countries like Germany, Belgium, France, Austria, the Netherlands, um, Sweden. and really work one on one with refugee families. Uh, we had a team of caseworkers um, that will provide a lot of assistance to help folks, you know, navigate the social system, uh, secure asylum status. That was one of the big things. Is that once you're, once you get to Europe, you still have to go through the refugee process. You are an asylum seeker until you've completed the interview, submitted your documentation, um, and been approved by an officer to be deemed a refugee. And then from there, it was mastering the local language, um, enrolling children in school, looking at, you know, uh, employment opportunities, whether that's reskilling, upskilling, or access to the labor market. And then lastly, the big thing we were trying to tackle was social integration, uh, which would take many years, uh, but helping folks uh, adjust to their new lives there. And so these experiences really helped in my work today as a public servant to help us think through policies, you know, engage with stakeholders, uh, and think through innovative approaches to supporting newcomers in Canada today. Um, we're currently in the midst of hosting a conversation in Toronto uh, in November on the past, present, and future of refugee settlements uh, with UNHCR Canada. This is something that I'm doing outside of work. Um, with the help of Carleton University and the University of Manitoba Press, which features this fireside chat with international journalist and lead news anchor Omar Sachandina, who recently released a documentary on his own family's roots in Uganda as well. And I'm also hoping to take on a position with Carleton University as a researcher in residence uh, to collect more oral histories with Ugandan Asian refugees and develop a thematic podcast. Uh, that will weave together common themes featuring the voices of Ugandan refugees over the next 18 months or so. Uh, We'll touch on elements like identity and belonging in Canada and how the resettlement fits within both Canada and Uganda's national histories.
1: Sounds incredible. I'm so impressed by the work that you are engaged in. Thank you. On behalf of all those who might not be able to verbally personally thank you themselves.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Art. It's uh, it's been an incredible journey, and I'm I'm still honestly so thankful and grateful for those that have opened up to me to share these incredibly powerful stories. Um, I'm just honestly the messenger. I've just sort of weave these things together. Um, they're the ones that have really shown the resiliency and and honesty about how powerful our human connections are.
1: I absolutely appreciate everything that you've sacrificed to bring this book into reality. Thank you, Ari. It was my, my pleasure. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, I am your host on the New Books in African Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, it has been my honor and my blessing to be in dialogue with Dr. Shizan Mohammadi. He is adjunct research professor at Carleton University and assistant director at Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. Today we have been discussing his newly published book, Gifts from Amin, Ugandan Asian Refugees in Canada, published in Winnipeg by University of Manitoba Press 2022. Thank you.